If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20 this morning. Acts chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. And the title for this morning's sermon is, A Life Devoted to Ministry. A Life Devoted to Ministry, Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. Here's what we read as the Apostle Luke is, our, the disciple Luke is writing here. He says, after the uproar ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and after, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. He prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, excuse me, sitting there at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead." But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to come together to worship you through song and through the preaching of your word. We pray that you would open up this text to us as we see a narrative of the New Testament church in a worship service and all the details that that happened in that particular evening as Paul preached beyond midnight. And I pray that you would take these principles and that you would affirm them to our own hearts, that we would love you and walk closer to Christ today because of what we've learned from this passage. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in 1867, Dwight L. Moody made his first trip over the Atlantic Ocean to preach in an evangelistic crusade in Europe. He was particularly there in England, and on his way over on the voyage, he got sick. And when he arrived, he said, I do not expect to visit this country again. Little did he know that God would use him in a mighty way to light a fire in many dying churches with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So not only that, but Moody would end up not making just one more trip, but five more trips to England in spite of the fact that he would get sick each and every time. Moody was feeling, uh, was willing, Moody was willing to face sickness and discomfort in order to reach others with the love of God. Moody was willing to journey far from home and far from ease in order to evangelize the lost and to encourage the church. And in our passage this morning, we see the apostle Paul heading out on yet another journey. 
for the same purpose, to evangelize the lost, to encourage the saints, to preach the word there in Asia Minor. Warren Wearsby writes, Paul was ready for another journey. He wanted to make at least one more visit to the churches that the Lord had helped him found because Paul was a man with a concerned heart. The care of the churches was his greatest joy as well as his heaviest burden. How is ministry a burden, you may ask? Well, because ministry is hard. Ministry takes time. It takes effort. And it takes a willingness to be hurt. In the ministry of Christ, you will receive, at times, criticism, ridicule, and disapproval. I mean, listen to what happened to the Apostle Paul as he chronicles some of his experiences as a minister of the gospel in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28, as he compares his own ministry with those of false prophets. He writes in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am taking, I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. All right, who wants to go into the ministry? You hear that and you're like, man, sign me up. I want to be involved in a ministry like that. Possibly even more toiling on Paul's life, more than the physical trials that he just mentioned and the beatings and the hunger and the cold, was just the emotional difficulties that he faced. The pressure, he mentions, of carrying the weight of the churches in his heart day and night. I mean, to carry the weight of other people's burdens can be a difficult thing. I mean, maybe even as a parent, if you're a parent here today, you know the weight of carrying the burdens of your children. I mean, at times it can be an incredible difficulty, a burden even, waking up through the night. If you have younger kids, making sure that you're feeding your kids well, that you're dressing them well, that they're getting to school okay, that they've got their homework done. You're, you're trying to protect them from harm. You're earnestly trying to point them towards Christ. And to do this with no apparent appreciation from them. In fact, sometimes you might face great opposition from your child or from your teenager who wants to do things another way. And as a pastor and as an elder, sometimes you constantly feel similar daily pressure for caring for the church. That you long for those in the church to love Christ and to live for Christ. And yet sometimes there's difficulty at home, there's division in relationships, and there's all kinds of counseling matters that would kind of weigh you down. But let me tell you something, being in the ministry, while it can be a burden, it's also a great joy. It's a great delight. Just like being a parent, to be able to see your kids learn to walk and to see your kids learn to read and to see your kids excel in some hobby or some sport, and just to be with them as you're teaching them how to, how to ride a bike, and you watch their, their little bodies grow up to adults. 
But nothing can top the opportunity you have as a parent to witness the work of the Spirit in their lives, saving them out of darkness and bringing them into light and having conversations with them about spiritual truth. And it's the same way at the church, that we get to have opportunities to deal with people who have difficulties, but also to rejoice with people who see great delight, who who have a great passion for the glory of Christ. And it's like what Paul writes to the church of Philippi when he says in Philippians 1, 3 and following, he says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in prayer, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it into completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's Paul's excitement. He's like, man, I love the Philippian church. I'm always praying for you. I'm always remembering you in joy. And he shares that same excitement as he remembers the believers in Thessalonia. He writes to them, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so he just kind of goes on and on again talking about, man, I have a, a great joy, a great affection for the saints in Philippi, for the saints in Thessalonia. And I just want you to know, I, I have a great affection for you. I, I love you guys as a church. I mean, I've been here almost 10 years. And it's a great delight. It is with an honor and a privilege to, to learn from you, to serve alongside of you. And while I'm nowhere like Paul, the apostle, you know, we're seeking to labor and to devote our lives to ministry together. And that's what we see in this passage, just the ongoing a devoted life to ministry in the example of the Apostle Paul. And so this morning, I want us to evaluate three aspects of Paul's ministry that certainly, certainly teaches us a little bit about devotion. Three aspects of his ministry that teaches us about devotion. Number one, we're going to look just for a few minutes at the practical nature of ministry, verses one through six. And then we're going to look at some of the essential elements of worship in verse seven, and then in verses eight. 8 through 12, we'll see the necessary life care for one another. Let's start with number one, the practical nature of ministry. And we're going to look at verses one through two. That first blank, if you're taking notes, says, encourage others with the word in every circumstance. Encourage others with the word in every circumstance, verses one through two. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Now remember, if you were with us last week at the end of Acts chapter 19, we were talking about the riot in Ephesus. There was this huge riot caused by Demetrius and his love for money, 
and he was also a silversmith who built and made goddesses of the goddess Artemis or Diana. And when Paul moved into Ephesus, and as he preached the gospel there, and people were converted, they stopped buying these goddesses, and their, 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 their uh, income went down, and so they caused this huge riot there in the, in the amphitheater just outside of Ephesus. And now we're reading that after that uproar ceased, now Paul sent for the disciples, the believers there in Ephesus, and after encouraging them, he goes and he heads on towards Macedonia. That's where he's heading, towards Macedonia, and he and he continued, these verses, one and two, continued to encourage them and to edify the Christians throughout the area. In fact, the, the word encourage here that's mentioned in verse one and in verse two, this word encourage, it means to exhort. It, it means to cheer someone on. It, it means to provide. It, it means to comfort. It, it can also mean to persuade or to beseech or to implore. And I think a little of all of this is going on as Paul is beseeching the disciples by the mercies of God, as he writes in Romans 12, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. I think that's what he's doing with the believers there in Ephesus, now in Macedonia, and as he enters into Greece. I believe that Paul was cheering them on in their faith. He was exhorting them to hold firm to the gospel, and he was providing comfort all at the same time in Christ, that in the end, it'll all be worth it. No matter what kind of persecution you face or difficulty you come to, following Christ is always worth it. And the text says he didn't give them just a little encouragement, he gave them much encouragement. He continued to talk about the beauty of Christ as this was his daily habit. This was Paul's lifestyle. This was Paul's passion to encourage the church in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that Paul's encouragement and his exhortation came primarily out of the scripture. It came primarily out of the word of God. For that's what Paul did. He taught the Bible. He evangelized with the Bible. He preached from the Bible. And, and this, is, this is Paul's habit, as we know in Paul when he was in Thessalonia in Acts 17, verse 2, just a few chapters before, it says, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. A few weeks ago, we discussed the expository nature of Paul's ministry of the Word in Acts 19.8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Paul was an encourager, and I'm saying to you this morning, he encouraged others from the Word. If you're not encouraging others from the word of God, then what are you encouraging them from? You can't really encourage believers with Fox News. You can't really encourage believers with updates on the economy. You can't really encourage believers by posting details of everything that you do in your life. Now again, I'm not saying social media is wrong, I like to watch Fox News from time to time. Those are all good things, but those don't capture the essence of encouraging another believer in God's word. The way that we encourage others is by pointing them to Christ. The way that you can be a blessing in someone else's life is by sharing with them a verse of scripture. 
The way that you can bless somebody else is to remind them that they, as you are, are blood-bought daughters and sons of the king. That's what encourages my heart. You want to encourage your pastor, you come up to me anytime and say, hey, pastor, I want to share with you what I've been reading in my daily Bible reading this week and how it's just blessed me beyond measure. That, that would be way more encouraging to me than almost anything else you could say. Just knowing that you're in the word, that you're, that you're feasting on the living precious uh, scripture day in and day out. And this is what Paul is doing as he's sharing, he's encouraging others to walk with Jesus and to worship Jesus every single day. This is what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We know the day of Christ is coming near. His return will be here at any moment. And in the meantime, we're to be encouraging one another with the scriptures day in and day out. And Paul was encouraging the saints there in Ephesus as he departed. He's encouraging the saints in Macedonia, verses one and two. And now he's gonna be encouraging the saints as he enters into Greece. And not only does the practical nature of ministry include encouragement, but it also includes the idea of we need to, your next blank, prepare for ongoing persecution and change of plants. We've got to prepare for ongoing persecution and possibly the change of plants. Look what happens in verse three as he's seeking to encourage others with the word. Verse three says, there in Greece, he spent three months and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So after about three months there in Greece, probably in Achaia, possibly also back in Corinth, it was time for Paul to continue his journey towards Jerusalem and then to Rome. And he had intended to catch a ship from Corinth's port, which had been carrying some Jewish pilgrims to Jerusalem for the Passover. However, as often was the case, Paul faced danger again from the Jews. When he was about to set sail, verse three says, for Syria, Paul became aware of a plot that had been formed against him by the Jews in Corinth. They had not forgotten the shocking conversions of the synagogue leaders, Crispus and Sosthenes. They had not forgotten about the humiliating defeat before the proconsul Gallio. And while the exact details of the plot are not given, certainly Paul would have been an easy target for murder on this smaller ship, especially one crowded with passionate Jewish pilgrims. And so the evil plot delayed Paul from heading directly to Jerusalem, and instead he determined to return to Israel through Macedonia. And from Macedonia, he would cross the Aegean Sea to find another ship in Asia Minor headed toward the Holy Land. And while the delay would prevent Paul from arriving in Israel until after the Passover, at least he would have the opportunity to arrive by Pentecost, which was about 50 days after the Passover. Certainly, this reminds us of the principle of Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. We got plans to do good things, 
to attend a Bible study, to go on a mission trip, to go to a camp. And all of a sudden, something comes up with your finances or your health or with your work schedule that derails you from being able to do what you wanted to do. And we've just got to learn that's just part of the Christian life. That's part of everybody's life. But we also got to understand that God is orchestrating all of the events in all of our lives to work all things out together for his will. And we must believe and trust that God is always doing the best thing at the best moment that would be best for his glory and for your good. And we must learn to walk by faith even in difficulties and in persecution and in any change of plans. And that leads us to verses four through six where your next blank says, disciple others along the way as you pour into people. Disciple others as you go along the way and hopefully you're pouring into people. Here's what I'm talking about. Look at verses four through six. Look at all the different people, all the different interactions that are a collection of what we've been studying through Acts. Verse four, Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Just simply noting here, verses four through six, Paul did not travel alone. He was accompanied by Sopater of Berea. Remember the Bereans, they wanted to compare what Paul preached there to the word of God and many of them came to saving faith. He was accompanied by Aristarchus and Secundus, which were Thessalonians that had taken Paul and the, the three Sabbaths or longer that he was there, they had taken the, the preaching of Paul and received it into their hearts. There's Gaius of Derby, and there's Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. The group apparently separated in Philippi since Luke notes that in those, those mentioned in verse four had gone on ahead while we were, they were waiting for us at Troas. So the use of these pronouns, us, in verse five, and we, in verse six, reveals that Luke was at this moment one of Paul's traveling companions rejoining him in Philippi. And Luke had apparently remained in Philippi after Paul and Silas had been forced to leave as the they pronoun is mentioned of Acts 17.1. Again, you're saying, Adam, I'm getting lost in all these people. Well, don't get lost in the main point, right? The main point is Paul did not travel alone. He had built relationships with different men from different cities, from different churches. In fact, who were all these people? They were Paul's companions who came from the different Roman provinces in which he had ministered. And they were most likely even official representatives of their churches and had taken collections from their church to give to the church in Jerusalem. So Sopater Aristarchus and Secundus were all from Macedonia. Gaius and Timothy were from Galatia. Tychicus and Trophimus were probably from Ephesus. They're in Asia Minor. Luke was most likely representing Philippi and Titus represented Corinth. And at this point, Paul, Luke, and possibly Titus sailed from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread, which was the Passover, and they came to Troas within five days, the text said, and after celebrating Passover in Philippi, they then sailed to rejoin their companions at Troas. Reunited, reunited in Troas, the party stayed there for seven days. Again, you say, Adam, you're losing me again, and I'm just saying, hey, 
He didn't travel alone. There's a lot of orchestration of a lot of people. The main takeaway that I'm driving at with these logistics that have been detailed in this travel log at verses four through six is that Paul was always busy with people. Paul was not a scholar locked up in his library. Paul was not just a blogger discussing controversial issues. Paul was a disciple maker. That's what he did. And in order to be a disciple maker, you have to get out of your house and you have to get out of your comfort zone and you have to get out of your overly structured schedule and you have to be with people. That's what Paul did. As he went and as he traveled, no matter what kind of persecution, no matter what kind of change in travel plans, nothing seemed to get him too down because wherever he was, he was with other saints and he was encouraging them and they were opening the word together and they were breaking bread together so nothing could go wrong. I mean, the only thing that could go wrong would be if he was in sin. If he's in sin, then that's going wrong, right? But if he's in the faith and if he's preaching the gospel and if he's never doing it alone, then there's always encouragement. He's always pouring his life into people. He's always involving them in his ministry. He's involving their help. He's enabling their giftedness. He's creating ministry opportunities for them to serve together. It's a beautiful thing. That's part of what I love about the Christian community, whether it's here at your local church or whether you're with other believers from other churches, there's that Christian community of encouraging one another. On Monday and Tuesday of this week, I had the opportunity to go to Kansas City. I was teaching at a seminary there on biblical counseling at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And then I also attended a one-day evangelism conference that Nine Marks with Mark Dever and several other people were putting on. And while I was there, I caught up with a friend from seminary that I haven't seen for a while. And he was there with the other pastors and interns and, and, and uh, men from his church. And he said, hey, Adam, what are you doing for lunch? And I'm like, I don't have any plans. He's like, come with us, man. We rented a bus. We're going to downtown Kansas City. We're going to eat at the best barbecue place you've ever seen. And sure enough, we jump on the bus. And the whole time I'm on the bus, uh, these guys that I'm sitting with, they're just asking, hey, Adam, tell me what's going on at your church. Share with me your testimony. How did you come to saving faith? Why did you leave your field of being a physician's assistant to be a pastor? And we arrive at the place for a barbecue, and as soon as you walk in, you just smell it. You know, it's kind of like you open the door and you're like, in fact, when I got home later that night, my wife was like, what have you been doing? I thought you were at a conference. You smell like you've been at a campfire. I'm like, baby, I had the best barbecue I've ever had today. It was awesome. You know, so what I'm saying is the whole time we're having barbecue, it's just simply fellowship. It's just sharing and encouraging with each other with the word. They wanted to hear more about physiology and biblical counseling, which was the subject matter I was teaching at the seminary. They wanted to hear more about Placerita. They wanted to hear about you. They wanted to hear about Dr. Barrick. They wanted to hear about other people that they had known that had been in and out of Placerita over the years. And it was just an incredible time. It was unstructured. It was just pouring life in to each other and just having those kind of unique times of fellowship. That's what, that's what it's about. That's how it is in our small groups. You guys know the feeling. That's how it is when you reconnect with others at different churches from time to time. You're just sharing Christ together. It's great encouragement. And that's such a, a natural, practical nature of ministry that in travel, in, in eating meals together, in living life together, Hopefully what you're not neglecting is encouraging one another. And that encouragement, again, must come from the word of God. If it's not coming from the word of God, it's not true biblical encouragement. We see that's the practical nature of the ministry of Paul. 
Not only that, but our second heading for this morning is the essential elements of worship. The essential elements of worship. Your next blank says, gather together on the first day of the week. Verse 7, we're going to see three essential elements of worship just from this one verse, from verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So three essential elements of worship we're going to see. The first one is just this fact that they gathered on the first day of the week. Notice how it says they were gathered together. So you got to come together outside of your home into a common meeting area to be together. This, this passage, in fact, verse 7, is really one of the earliest recorded descriptions of a Christian worship service of a New Testament church. And I think it's important that we recognize that this was a gathering and it also, it occurred on the first day of the week. The, the church did not gather on the Sabbath as the Jews were commanded to do in the Old Testament. Ever since the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the first day of the week became the common time that New Testament Christians would, would, would gather together. In fact, the word for church is ecclesia, which means a gathering. It means an assembly. The very word church is an assembly of believers that would meet together, and they would often meet at night, since in the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath was the Jewish time of worship, and so uh, Sunday, the first day of the, de- uh, of the week, was a work day. And so they would often gather together on Sunday evening, and they would break bread together, and then have the preaching of the word, and have time to interact on a, on a, on a Sunday evening, the first day of the week, since it was likely a work day. And I just want to stress here, since this is clearly stating that it happened on the first day of the week, let me just give you eight reasons, if I can, of why the church meets on Sunday and not on Saturday. You know, from time to time, we'll get this question as a pastor, or maybe you've gotten this question as a Christian, well, what about Seventh-day Adventists? You know, what about the Jews who still meet on uh, the Sabbath? You know, there's so much about the Sabbath in the Bible, shouldn't we maybe meet on the Sabbath? Let me give you seven or eight reasons, rather, why the church meets on Sunday. Number one, we are under the new covenant. We are under the new covenant. So just understand, under the old covenant, as God gave special directions to Moses of how to orchestrate the Old Testament Jewish people, they were to meet on the Sabbath. In fact, it's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? So there was an understanding that there was Sabbath worship for the Old Testament, but I'm here to tell you this morning that we're not under the Old Testament, Right? We're, we're under the New Testament. That means we're under the New Covenant. The things of the Old Testament have grown dim. In fact, the Old Testament, according to Hebrews 8, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant has become obsolete. So everything that's mentioned, particularly dietary law, ceremonial law, civil law, and the day that they met on was all expired. It was all, I should say, fulfilled in Christ. And when Christ came, those particulars were no longer something to be held on to because we're not old covenant Christians, we're new covenant Christians. Number two, there's no command in the New Testament to observe the Sabbath. So just to be clear, there is no command in the New Testament that says you need to observe the Sabbath. 
Instead, again, we read in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, that it was on the first day of every week, as you put something aside and store it up, that, that you could uh, have a collection when I come, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Again, on the first day of the week, there would be an offering that would be prepared. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, where John is on the Isle of Patmos, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So the Lord's day would be referring to the Lord's day of resurrection, to the Lord's day of, of, of the first day of the week. This was on the first day of the week. So there's no command in the New Testament. Now, out of the 10 commandments, nine of them are reiterated multiple times in the New Testament. But the one commandment that's not reiterated in the New Testament is the one I mentioned, the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. It's just not said in that way that that's something that the New Testament church is to focus on. Number three, the Jerusalem council did not mention the Sabbath. So if there was a time for the Sabbath to be reiterated, certainly it would have been in Acts 15, where everybody was saying, hey, what is it that this New Testament Gentile church is doing, and which part of this do we need to move forward with, and what should we hold on to from the old? And if you remember, when we were in that section a few months ago, we talked about how they came to the conclusion that they should not trouble the Gentiles who turned to God, but we should write to them too, and they gave four things they wanted them to do. Remember this? They wanted them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that which had been strangled and from blood. So that was the only thing that held over from the Old Testament that they said, hey, for right now, it would be important for us to hold on to this in the New Testament. They didn't mention circumcision, which was the big question, and then they didn't mention the Sabbath. The Sabbath wasn't even on the table as a discussion of should that be done. So if keeping the Sabbath was a New Testament principle, certainly it would have been confirmed in that Jerusalem council. Number four, no warning given in the New Testament about breaking the Sabbath. There's no warning given, at least not by Christ or the apostles, of breaking the Sabbath. If there was a warning, it was the Pharisees that were trying to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. You remember, like from Matthew 12, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and so they began to pluck heads of grain to eat, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So they're accusing Jesus, saying, hey, your disciples aren't doing the right thing, and Jesus is like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. Not so quick. That's, that's not what they're doing. Instead, the Old Testament allowed for people to gather grain at the edges of the field. Not only that, Jesus' direct answer was them to them in Matthew 12, that same passage. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate bread, the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? So we should remind them, you remember in the Old Testament, David was on the run and he went into the temple and he ate the showbread, the bread of the presence. It was only for the priests. And David was never condemned for that. Or have you not read in the law, Jesus goes on, how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So he's saying, if the priest kept the Sabbath law, because you have to also understand the Jews added extra laws to the Sabbath. You know, he was like, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then the Jews were like, and you can only walk this far. And you can't do this. And you can't do that. And they start adding to it. But Jesus is like, if, if that's true, then the priests have profaned the Sabbath. And yet the Bible maintains that they were guiltless in doing their service duties that they were required to do as well on the Sabbath. And then Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. 
And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's the key. He's like, you guys are focusing on the Sabbath, and you should be focusing on the Son of Man. The Son of Man is over the Sabbath. He, he, he ordained the Sabbath, and now the Son of Man, Jesus, is simply out overdoing the Sabbath, saying that's no longer part of what is required of you. In fact, you could say this, number five, the Sabbath was just a shadow of Christ. It was always meant to be a shadow, and when Christ came, those Sabbatarian laws were done away with. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So he's like, hey, don't let anybody put pressure on you to follow a certain festival, the three feasts that they were required to keep, the new moon, another festival, or the Sabbath. These are but a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The focus is always on Christ. It's on the gospel work of Christ, not on are you keeping the Sabbath the way the old covenant emphasized keeping the Sabbath. Number six, keeping special days like the Sabbath was seen as legalistic. Keeping special days like the Sabbath was seen as legalistic. He wrote a whole book, Paul did, to the Galatians. And he's like, who bewitched you? Why are you guys returning back to things of the old covenant when we have the new covenant? He said, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So he's telling them, don't hold on to these Sabbatarian laws or that seen as legalism because keeping the Sabbath won't save you, only Christ will save you through repentance and faith. And then last, or I got two more, I guess. Number seven, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Again, we looked at that in Matthew, but in Mark 2, 27 and 28, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he's just reminding them the Sabbath was given to man so that man could worship God, as was instructed in the Old Testament. But now man is not under the Sabbath, man is under Christ. And as being under Christ, you don't keep the Sabbath laws anymore. This is why they're worshiping again on the first day of the week. It's a clean break from Judaism and from Old Covenant um, times to New Covenant theology. And last but not least, number eight, church history makes it clear that worship was on the first day of the week. This was the practice of the early church from then on, not only in the scriptures as we've seen, but also in the early church as you have church fathers of Ignatius and Justin Martyr and Tertullian all recording in their writings that the church met on the Lord's day, which is the first day of the new week. And so we're looking at here in verse seven, some essential elements of worship. And the first is that they gathered but they did it on the, on the, I'm about to say the Sabbath, they did it on Sunday. They gathered, but they did it on Sunday, the first day of the week. We also see here in verse seven, that when they gathered on the Lord's day, they also, your next blank, participated in communion together to remember Christ. They participated in communion together to um, remember Christ. In the middle of verse seven, they were gathered together to break bread. So they came together on the first day of the week and they would break bread together. Some believe this would be a reference to the agape feasts where new Testament believers would gather often and have a full meal together. Others would say it's referring to that plus the specific 
ordinance of practicing communion together, and I think that there could be a little bit of both. You know, the question is, every time they broke bread, was it a meal, was it communion, was it both? And I'm not, I mean, I'm kind of more of like, we're probably doing a little bit of everything. They're probably eating together, but at some point in that meal, I think they had a specific time of like, at this moment, let's make a special remembrance of what Christ has done for us. It's a powerful thing for believers to gather together to witness the baptism of newborn believers in Christ. And it's a powerful thing for the church to gather together to partake in communion together. It's a special ordinance that that Christ taught at the Last Supper. Let me just remind you of three reasons why it's so important that we practice communion together. Number one, the Lord's Supper is powerful in its reception. It's powerful in its reception. I'm just talking here about we view that sharing together in the Lord's Supper as a memorial, which means that we believe that the elements are not actually transubstantiated into the actual body and blood of Christ, but it's simply a memorial. It's a symbol. The bread and the grape juice, some churches use wine, don't actually turn into the body and blood, but because that's what the Roman Catholics believe, right? The Eucharist, the whole idea is that Christ is re-sacrificed, only the priest can give it, and somehow there's atoning work in that experience together that saves you. And the gospel doesn't teach that. It's a memorial, it's a reminder, and yet at the same time, while we're saying it's a memorial and a reminder, we shouldn't have a low view of the Lord's table. It should be high and holy in our hearts that on this day, on the Lord's day, we're coming together to remember what Christ has done, which means you better get your heart right. It means you better be ready to worship in purity and in holiness. It means you better be ready to say, you know what, I'm right with Christ and I'm right with my brother and my sister on my left and on my right so that I can partake in this together. It ought to be a deep delight in taking communion together and not taken together flippantly or with such familiarity that we lose a high view of the Lord's table. This is a high view of what they're doing that night as they gather together to have special communion. It was never meant to be practiced alone. It wasn't meant to be practiced in private or just a personal thing. It was meant to be done together with God's church. Second thing about communion, the Lord's Supper is powerful in its proclamation. It's powerful in its proclamation. Listen to me this morning. Sermons preach to the ear, but communion preaches to the eyes. I'm just simply saying, when you hear a sermon, it's just all like, man, I got to remember and listen. But when you see an act carried out, then it's something that your eyes are teaching you like, hey, what's going on? What's so important about taking that bread? And what's so important about taking that cup? The preaching of the word has great power. But the Lord's Supper and sharing it together also has great power as we see the gospel proclaimed through the explanation of the elements. And so we should never minimize the uniqueness of this fact. I mean, I can't tell you how many times over, over my life as a parent, sitting right here on this row with our kids, uh, particularly when they were younger and those who aren't been baptized yet don't take communion. And so, but they would ask, you know, at age two, age three or four or five or whenever they're sitting, hey, mommy, how come, what is that? Why are you drinking that? Why are you eating that? And you just sit down and just whisper to them, this is about the gospel. This represents the body of Christ who was crucified for sinners like you. You see this juice? This represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for sinners. And, you know, usually the kids are like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. (laughs) But you keep repeating that over and over and over again. It starts to stick with them. 
It starts to stick with them. It's a, it's a visual illustration of gospel that we get to do. And we, we don't have a lot of that in the church, do we? You know, we're, the Old Testament is full of symbols and it's full of like, hey, let's participate in, in this feast and that feast. And you have all kinds of symbols all over the place. And for us, we tend to be a little bit more, well, it's just in the word and we do this. We have baptism and we have the Lord's table. So I say, let's make the most of it. That's, you got two things and, and one of them we only do twice a year and the other one we only do once a month. And some churches from this would say we should practice communion weekly. There's a lot of, the commentaries, uh, commentators are just split on it. Half the commentators say it's got to be done once a week, and the other half say it, it's, a, it's a Christian liberty. Some churches practice once a, every other week, once a month, once a quarter. So we practice once a month. It's something that we've reevaluated as an elder team. Maybe after this message, we'll reevaluate again. How come we do this and what, what, what should we be doing? All right, now let's move on. Number three, another thing that they practice or, or that the Lord's Supper does powerfully. Number three, the Lord's Supper is powerful in its unification. And we've kind of alluded to this already. When, when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, Paul speaks much about their call to unity at the table because the point is, is that we're to take the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is powerful and it's powerful in the way it builds community within the church as it illustrates that we're all in Christ and that we're all coming together as repentant sinners. And we're all placing our faith in one and the same Savior. And therefore, we're sharing in the same hope. In Jesus, we are all family. There are no distinctions. Skin color doesn't matter. Paycheck size doesn't matter. Social status doesn't matter. What matters is Christ's blood, which reconciles us to God and reconciles us to each other. It's a beautiful practice to, to come together as a body when we receive communion together. I was tipped off to a powerful illustration this week in a book on communion entitled Making a Meal of It. It's written by Ben Witherington III, and he gives this powerful illustration of the unity that ought to be shared in a church taking communion together. Here's the illustration that he gives. He writes, at the end of the Civil War in Richmond, Virginia, on the Sunday after the surrender, a worship service was held in the historic Episcopal Church. It was an old church that had a balcony where the slaves of the owners had sat for many years with their masters and their families sitting downstairs. The practice in this church had been to have two calls for the Lord's Supper. One first for the whites downstairs and then one for the slaves upstairs. But on this given Sunday, at the first call to communion, an older black man, a former slave, began down the center aisle right after the call. Naturally enough, there was a surprise and shock downstairs, but what it was even more of a shock was when an elderly, white, bearded gentleman got up and hooked his arm in the arm of the former slave, and they went forward and took communion together. That man was Robert E. Lee. There is forgiveness that day in communion. There is forgiven, uh, forgiveness and healing in reunion at the table on that day. And thereafter, there was no more segregated communion. This indeed is one of the functions of communion, the receiving and the sharing of forgiveness. Jesus sacrificed himself so that our sins might be forgiven and so that we might be forgiving as well. 
powerful illustration to think about the unity of coming together for the Lord's table. Let's move on to one more aspect of worship here in verse seven, is that it's centered around the preaching. It's centered around the preaching. The rest of verse seven says that Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. This means that Paul had a lot to say. He had been there in Troas, remember, for seven days, and it was time for him to move on, but this sermon that night was prolonged until midnight. And we know that Paul was big on preaching. We've established that fact, right? He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Paul repeats that emphasis in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And this is exactly what Paul's modeling in Troas that very night. The first part of the evening may have been more of a formal sermon or lecture, and then possibly this turned into a time of response, a time of questions, a time to discuss what had been taught. Verse 9 says that Paul talked still longer. So you get the idea of he just keeps going and he keeps going. In fact, verse 11 says that Paul conversed with them a long while until daybreak. Now, obviously, this is a unique event It's the last time they would see Paul as he's heading out of town, but we should see from this text that he was preaching and teaching the word of God. Preaching and teaching should be taken seriously. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about the primacy of preaching in his book, Preaching and Preachers. He writes, is it not clear as you take a bird's eye view of church history that the decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching has declined. What is it that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or of a revival? It is renewed preaching. So I like that, it's just an emphasis again that we see that Paul's there not only to take communion, not only just for that that experience as powerful and holy as it is, but to break open the word. And at the same time, we need to draw from this text that that, that while preaching is important, it's not necessary that a preacher preach a 10-hour sermon. Can I just get an amen to that? You don't have to preach a 10-hour sermon. Paul preached all night. And we also want to understand that John Newton wisely said, when weariness begins, edification ends. So be careful that we don't go so long that we're weary, but this was a special occasion on that night. And then you see what happens next in our third aspect of Paul's devotion in ministry number three, the necessary life care for one another. And now we're talking about this famous occurrence of Eutychus. Look at your next blank, the details of the situation. Paul, it's late. Paul's going long, and what happens, verses eight and nine, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, there's all kinds of excuses given to this. Well, Paul was too long. He was too boring. See, that's an example. If you preach too long, you're going to kill people, pastor. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that's humorous written about this. But I would just say that the description of the situation, just to dig back into the text, is that it's late at night. There are lamps that were providing light, but lamps also emit heat. 
It may have gotten a little stuffy in the upper room that night. This young man named Eutychus was probably between seven and 14 years of age. So he's a, he's a young man, seven to 14, and I think that we should also give Eutychus the benefit of the doubt and consider that he felt sleepy and may have been dozing off. He may have even gotten up at some point and purposely sat in the windowsill so that he could get a breath of fresh air and a little bit of breeze to maybe keep him awake. But between the fumes of the lamps and the stuffiness of the room and the late hour of midnight, Eutychus simply sank into a deep sleep as Paul continued to talk. And I don't believe that Eutychus was in sin. I don't believe that Eutychus was being judged by God like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. This was a simple accident. And yet we know in God's providence, there are no accidents. He's sovereign over every aspect and every event of our life. So what happened was, is that Eutychus fell, verse 9, from the, from the window of, on the third story to the rock hard ground below, and he died at that moment. And if Luke, as a physician, declares that Eutychus was dead, then we can safely assume that this is indeed the case. So that's the description of the situation. Let's now look at verses 10 through 12 and look at the attentive care that was given. The attentive care that was given. Verse 10 through 12 reads, it says, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a little while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So again, after Eutychus fell out the window and died, this shocking occurrence no doubt broke up the meeting and stunned uh, and shocked again the believers who gathered around Eutychus's body. And this tragedy, how, however, would soon be turned into a triumph as, as the Bible says that Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Now, Paul is not saying that Eutychus did not die. Paul is saying that God has now performed a miracle and Eutychus's life has been given back to him. This is reminiscent of Elijah reminiscent of Elijah in 1 Kings 17.2 when he raised up the widow's son. He stretched himself out over the body. Again, we see this with Elisha in 2 Kings 4.34 when he raised up the Shumanite son. Even Jesus had made a similar comment in Matthew 9.24 when he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. Again, all pointing to temporary life is gone and then life was given back. But verse 11 shows what happens is that Paul, he, he, when he went there, he said his life is in him. So the miracle had been performed. And then verse 11, Paul continued with the Lord's Supper and conversing a little while longer till daybreak and then departed. And in verse 12 says the boy was alive and not, not, not a little comforted. Everybody there was greatly comforted. Now I can't help, again, when we look into this text about Eutychus and him falling asleep and the, the, all the things that are said here, let me just ask you this morning if I can, who in here has ever fallen asleep in church? Oh, come on. Right, come on, who, who has ever fallen asleep? And you've been in church and you have somehow dozed off just for a minute maybe, but you dozed off. A bunch of you guys are lying to me right there. That, that, that Acts 5 thing that Ananias and Sapphira might be coming back. So, the, you know, like, I think the majority of us, okay, I confess, I have fallen asleep in church multiple times. In fact, I joke with some people and say, that's why I became a preacher. 
I don't have to worry about it anymore. If you're the one preaching, you're not going to fall asleep. So that way I'm awake every sermon that I'm involved in fully throughout the sermon. But it is somewhat of a common occurrence, right, where people fall asleep in church. And since this is the only time in the Bible where it's mentioned that somebody actually fell asleep in church, I wanted to take just a moment and address this subject a little further. I would say there are a lot of reasons, your next blank, a lot of reasons why people sleep in church. There's a lot of reasons, and I want to be a little bit sympathetic, particularly towards the first one, which would be, number one, physical exhaustion for good reason. Now, we can all understand there are some people who work all night. There, there are mechanics in our church that work all night and they come and they sit through the service. There are policemen in our church who work late shifts into the night. I was talking to one uh, this morning who went to bed last night at 2.45 a.m. and is up and here ready to go. This, this, this is a common occurrence. When I worked in medicine, I would often be in the OR all night long and leave the hospital and just go straight to church. Now, again, that doesn't mean you're a mighty Christian if you can you know, do that. I'm, I'm just saying that sometimes people show up because they want to be there and they're physically exhausted, and maybe it's not from work. Maybe they were up all night with a sick baby. Maybe they were up all night with some other reason. You know, there was a plumbing problem at the house or something, and they were up half the night trying to figure it out, and so they show up to church. Maybe there's a newborn baby. So I'm just saying, if there's physical exhaustion for a good reason, which is what I think was happening to Eutychus, it's midnight, it's hot, He's a young boy. I'm not going to give him too much trouble for what happened. But there's other reasons. There's other reasons I want to mention. Number two, wisdom decisions that we need to grow in. Wisdom decisions that we need to grow in. I'm talking now to you college students. (laughs) Like, watch out now. That's right. That's right. You know, if you're up to midnight or 1 or 2 a.m. because you're out partying or you're watching a really late night movie or you're playing video games, Okay, I said it, video games, all right? Then you just gotta start thinking about the wisdom of is that the best way if I know that's gonna cause me to fall into sleep and, and regularly. You know, again, if it's a one, one time a year for some special reason, you know, let's give a little grace, but if that's a normal habit that you're involved in, then there are some wisdom issues that you need to think about. You're, you're neglecting the, the beauty of being alert on the Lord's day and that's something that I think we could all live uh, or grow in that and, and making wise decisions. Number three, it could be that there's no spiritual life in you. It could be that if you regularly fall asleep every Sunday at church, not because you're physically exhausted, not because you're watching a movie late, late last night, but because you don't care. It could be that you're not born again. There's nothing that excites you when the word is open and read and when it's proclaimed. It doesn't stir your spirit because you're in that state of Ephesians 2.1. You're dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And if that's you this morning, then I'm hoping and praying that God would awaken you from a spiritual stupor of being dead so that when you hear that you would be stirred and that you would want to relate to and listen to and grow in Christ-likeness. A fourth reason why some people fall asleep would be is because of number four, distraction due to compromising sin. Distraction due to compromising sin. At this point, I'm saying it's beyond a wisdom issue. You are born again, but you have settled for some ongoing sin in your life and your conscience has become become somewhat callous and you're in ongoing unrepentant sin and so it's as if you're dead and who knows maybe you are but you're certainly distracted by this ongoing sin because you're more interested in your lust 
your desire of the flesh, whatever that may be, and you keep thinking about that and focusing on that, and it dominates all of your energy and all of your focus to where that's what's really why you're so distracted at church is you just don't really care, not because you would say I'm not a Christian, but because you're so distracted with other idols that dominate your focus. Or number five, maybe this one fits with you, disinterest due to familiarity. Disinterest due to familiarity. You're so familiar with the Bible, so you think, that you don't have anything else to learn. You've heard that sermon preached before. You've heard it preached better by somebody else. You know, you, you prefer to, 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 to do something else during the service instead of open your heart and say, God, would you speak to me through this scripture? It, it may be something I say, it may not be something I say, but we know God's word is open, and we turn to like 100 cross-references every Sunday and say, look at this verse, look at this verse, look at this verse. Hopefully one of those verses is jumping off the page and screaming, saying, look at the glory of God. Look at the beauty of his character. Look at the area where you're struggling and the way that you can find true freedom by coming to Christ. And so I just think that it's good for us to maybe take those five suggestions of possible uh, reasons for why you might struggle with sleeping in church and just do an honest inventory and have some great conversations with others. Here's the take home for this morning. Number one, are you involving yourselves in practical, the practical nature of your ministry? Are you involved? Are you involving others, it says, involving others in the practical nature? Christianity is not a one-man show. It is you mingling with others, discussing God's word, and growing together. Number two, do you participate in the Lord's Supper with the proper perspective? We've been reminded about that. There's not a low view of the Lord's table here. There's a high view of the Lord's table, and that we want to have that right perspective of being right with God and right with each other. And then lastly, what is your motive for being here on a Sunday? What's your motive for being? Is it just to show up? Is it just to see some friends? Is it because you like the coffee we serve? You know, are you here to grow? Are you here to have your toes stepped on? You know, I remember as a young man, I was just like, come on, pastor, just bring it. Bring the heat. I want to be, I want to just like be beat up, you know, like in a good way. Like you go to the gym and you're just like, man, I just want to get after it. So I'm sore tomorrow. And when you come on a Sunday, I hope that you're spiritually engaged and you're just like, God, I want to know you and I want to be changed. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you fit into that one that you're asleep because you're dead, then we wanna invite you to Christ this morning. And so after we sing our last song, we have a few people that'll be standing right by this door. There's a prayer room right over there. We'd love to talk to you about how you could be made alive by turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Or maybe you're here and you have any kind of struggle, anything that we could pray for you about, please come and take advantage of our prayer ministry. We'd love to meet with you this morning and encourage you in any way that we can. Why don't we close together in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to see Paul's life devoted to ministry as he traveled from place to place to place and faced persecution and faced difficulty, but always involved his life with so many so many brothers, so many sisters we read throughout Acts that he involved himself with. And just thank you for the reminder today of the beauty of coming together on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, to be set apart, to practice communion as often as we do here, to be able to, to be alert to the truths that we read in Scripture, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be those that would exhort and encourage others with the same truth, the same gospel that, that has transformed our hearts and our lives, God. So be glorified today as we sing this last song, as we consider what we've learned, that you would be our rock and our fortress, our light and our deliverer, 
in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.